Hi, my name is Greg Hancock, and along with my marshmallow-burning friend Patrick Curran, we make up Quantitude. We're a podcast dedicated to all things quantitative, ranging from the relevant to the completely irrelevant. In today's episode, we continue our summertime foray into the history of quantitative methods, today focusing specifically on issues related to measurement. We hope you enjoyed today's fireside chat. Give me your best estimate. How many different places have you recorded (laughs) during the pandemic? Let's define places. Do you mean literally they would be in a different place on the map? I guess there are two latent classes. There is within (laughs) your home, Uh because I've seen three or four ones just within your home alone. Oh, yeah. But then moving out into longitude and latitude, you have been scattered to the winds as well. Yeah, I would guess it has been between 15 and 20 different chairs that I've been sitting in. It's included at least four states. That's not bad. One was in a car outside of a library in Upper Michigan. That was, I think, a new low. One was in a car outside a library pirating off the Wi-Fi. The other was just when we were recording last summer with Niana. I just pulled off a road where I still had good enough Wi-Fi, and so part of that was recorded there. I hadn't thought about my my car as one of those chairs (laughs) that I recorded in. But you always have the same boring background. So I have the same boring chair and the same boring background, except for today, Mm -hmm. is I am actually squatting in my brother's basement in Denver, Colorado, more technically Littleton. It's down on Mm -hmm. the south side. And my brother is out and about with his family on a well-deserved vacation. And I came in to be the good son and to hang out with my elderly mom Mm. who lives just 15 minutes from here. So I am here all by myself, actually. The rest of my family is coming next week and we're going to do a week of vacation things. My brother is very fortunate, has a house on a city park that has a lake. Mm. And I spend a lot of time with a cup of coffee on the back deck just staring at the lake. And I will remind people that this summer, we're not going as uh, intensely as we did last summer. Last summer, I think we had eight episodes. This summer, we're being a little bit more modest in our goals. I think we're targeting around three episodes, trying to weave in a little bit more work-life balance, some nice family time. So this is two of three, I think, is the plan. I love how you make it sound intentioned. (laughs) I have on my desk at home a scribbled outline of eight episodes <laughs> that we were going to do this summer. And I love your retrofitting. I don't know what you're talking Of about. how it's all about quality of life and that <laughs> we're just going to slow down and take it easy. Yeah, we blew it, buddy. And you know it. This is about our continued commitment to family and well-being. Which is why I'm 2,000 miles away from my family on my own. Thanks, Hancock. Yeah, That's super helpful. You know, I saw this thing online. I don't know if you've seen it, but it had a European out-of-office message that people leave on their email, and it had an American out-of-office message. The European one was, I'm away camping for the summer, email again in September. And the American one was, I have left the office for two hours to undergo kidney surgery, but you can reach me on my cell anytime. Well, so now that you're in Colorado, 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 it's Colorado, isn't it? No. Colorado? Yeah, Colorado. Rocky Mountain High. Colorado. Colorado. Okay. Yeah. All right. I want to speak the language of your people. <laughs> <laughs> Give that a go. I can hear the shotguns hitting the stop signs from here. It's a 22. Thank you. <laughs> okay. 22. 
So last week we were at a swimming pool, a really nice swimming pool. But now that you're up in Colorado, maybe we need a different setting for this week. I don't know what your life was growing up. We did not have sunscreen, but we had an entire cabinet of solar cane. Do you remember solar cane? <laughs> Stop sunburn pain with solar cane. Solar cane with pain-killing benzocaine. Is you would get a uh-huh. third-degree burn during the day being out unprotected. And then you would go home and your mom would spray you with a topical anesthetic uh-huh. so that you couldn't feel the pain. <laughs> I don't know what. Sitting by a campfire? I like campfires. We can Ooh. roast a marshmallow or a wiener or whatever. <laughs> okay. We can do that. I need to make maybe two corrections to your growing up story, though. Okay, just to clarify, you're going to correct my growing up story? Yes, you're mistaken about how you grew up. Um, (laughs) We didn't go outside with no protection. We went outside with baby oil. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. How can we magnify the UV rays to have maximum effect? And then in terms of the back end with solar cane, I had an uncle, a great uncle, and he was great in both senses of the word, who was a firm believer in covering yourself in plain yogurt. <laughs> so, so there were times in my life when I had a terrible sunburn and he, he slathered plain yogurt on me, which for those of you who are wondering, it really does kind of suck out the sting, but it crusts all over your back and then you leave this white powdery dust wherever you walk as the crust falls off, the yogurt crust. Maybe you didn't need to know that part. Now, I spent every summer in Wisconsin and did you get the insect repellent where they would spray it on you and you could taste it in your mouth? (laughs) And it wasn't the overspray, it was actually in your blood. The absorption. (laughs) Excellent. All right, so we need some camping sounds. How's this? <laughs> Sorry. Uh, let's try this. All right, so we got a roaring campfire. We got some marshmallows. Mm-hmm. I got to tell you, if the marshmallow ain't on fire, you ain't doing it right. You know, if you lick the marshmallow, if you get spit all over the marshmallow and then you roast it, it turns this really nice golden brown. That's disgusting. But did you also know that if you marshmallow lights on fire and you wag the stick to put it out and it flies off of the end and hits your brother in the chest, that it's kind of like a homemade napalm. It it is exactly. That's really how it works. I love the smell of napalm in the morning. Smells like victory. So remind me where we left off. Absolutely. Well, (laughs) whenever the last episode was, we were sort of talking about the evolution of statistical thinking going all the way back to some of the foundations of probability and how that wound up informing hypothesis testing and distributions and concepts of parameters describing populations and into the foundations of the general linear model and correlation, correlation, correlation as one of the primary things. And we hit a lot of really colorful characters along the way. And somehow deboned a hill full of sheep. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yes, there is a fascinating trajectory that brings us to where we are. And for me, 
the big one, among a lot of really important things that we talked about, but the big one was Pearson's insight of moving from the data for the sake of the data to the data as an entry point to the parameters of the underlying distribution. And I still to this day find it fascinating to think about our primary goal as data analysts are these moments of the underlying distributions. Mm -hmm. And we talked a little bit about this in the prior episode as we talked so much about individual observations, individual prediction. If someone on average is higher on this, they tend to be higher on that. All of those are done at the level of means and variances and covariances. That really was what was pinned as the beginning of the statistical revolution. And then everything that we talked about went from there. Yeah. And I think today what we need to do is circle back just a little bit because the history is not really linear. There are different threads that are developing and ultimately they start weaving together. And that might be what we'll be talking about next time. But I think we need to go back just a little bit. I agree. We can go all the way back to Galton and revisit the correlation, that notion of how do two things relate to one another? And where did that line of thinking go? Yeah, if I had to pick one thing for everything that we talked about last time, I might go with correlation as this critical, pivotal technique in fact, so much so that if you weren't correlating things in the early 1900s, then you just weren't even one of the cool kids, right? Gathering tons of variables and looking at how they correlate. And one person who was doing that extensively was our hero, Charles Spearman. You know what I find cool about Spearman? Hmm. He was an officer in the army for 15 years yeah. before he went back to not only being one of the earliest PhDs in experimental psychology, but he was a student of Wilhelm Wundt, arguably the father of psychology. How cool is that? Yeah, it was very cool. He was a, shall we say, a non-traditional student. And he even got called away during his graduate studies, right? Didn't he have to go, Sorry, old chap, I must go off to the Boer War. Duty calls, you know. But yeah, very, very cool. I could tell you a little bit about Winston Churchill's adventures <laughs> in the Boer War. I'm sure you could. <laughs> so why do you find Spearman so fascinating? You know how last time we talked about how you could just credit Fisher with so many really cool ideas with respect to statistics? I think we can credit Spearman with so many cool ideas with respect to measurement. And measurement and statistics are not these completely divorced entities. But one thing that Spearman did, and it's going to tie into correlation here, he really helped us to question what the numbers are that we hold in our hand. You know, I work with a lot of statisticians, capital S statisticians, and they rarely question where the numbers come from that they analyze. They are very focused. And I don't mean this critically. They're very focused on the methods that they're going to use to analyze the data. But what are the data? What are the numbers? And I think a foundation of some of the things that Spearman really helped us to think through is that there's often a disconnect between the number that we hold in our hand and the thing that we really care about. And he got to that in a variety of ways, one of which was correlation. It's interesting because like any good scientist is he drew on those who came before him. Mm -hmm. And somebody who doesn't get the credit that they should, I think, in the historical line is George Ewell. Oh. Yeah, nice. you don't get enough of Ewell. So 
let's get some years here, all right? So I jotted some down. As Spearman, we started in 1863 is when he was born, Mm -hmm. died in 1945. Why we raise Spearman is he is considered the inventor of factor analysis. Now, as my 89-year-old mom would say, God invents, humans discover. So (laughs) Spearman discovered factor analysis Uh in 1904, but he drew on George Ewell. Now, they were contemporaries, so Ewell was 1871 to 1951. Mm -hmm. He was a statistician with a capital S, and all sorts of stuff he developed. Ewell distribution, Ewell statistic, the Ewell log. Did you know he invented the Ewell log? (laughs) I did not know that. (laughs) Yes, he invented the Ewell log. But one of the things he developed was in 1896, as close as I can peg it, is partial correlation. Oh, yeah. This is pretty dang cool. What he did was developed an analytical method to look at the correlation between what was left in two measures net a third, right? It's just what we would think about. What's the correlation between Y1 and Y2 above and beyond the shared effects of X? Mm -hmm. Well, he kind of put that out on the table and Spearman picked it up and he said, well, let's think about this for a moment. Spearman was very interested in development of intelligence and cognitive ability. It was a very early time. And we're up to our eyeballs in eugenics at this point, mm-hmm. and we have promised to have a conversation about this in a more meaningful way in the fall. I think it's important in today's conversation to identify who was and was not part of that camp. Mm-hmm. So Galton, absolutely. He founded yeah. the eugenics field. Fisher, all in. Pearson, he was inconsistent, but mostly yeah. eugenics. Both Ewell and Spearman were not. Spearman was really interested in ability and in cognitive ability. And he was looking at a correlation matrix among a set of tests on different aspects of cognitive ability. Mm -hmm. I don't have them in front of me. Do you remember? Math and English and musical talent and pitch discrimination. And it really just cut across a wide variety of things. Things that you might not really expect would correlate. Exactly. And going back to what you were saying about what does that number represent is he had a hypothesis that these performance measures are positively correlated because there's some underlying shared cause. And drawing on Ewell's log, no, not the log, that was something else, (laughs) drawing on Ewell's Mm -hmm. partial correlation, Spearman hypothesized if we were able to estimate and remove that shared influence of this underlying factor, then what's left of those correlations should go to zero. And oh, minor hitch, in this case, X is something that we can't see. We don't even know if it exists. So the idea of translating a partial correlation where the predictor or the variable that you're controlling for is known to one where it is latent, we're not even sure if it's a thing, was incredibly clever, right? And that really was at the core of factor analysis. So if you're quanti and you want to be intolerably self-righteous at a cocktail party... (laughs) You keep mentioning these parties. I am not aware of these. Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. 1904. Spearman published the very first application of what is now known as factor analysis. The title of that, you know what I love about the title? 
even in the title, he puts general intelligence in quotes. Oh, yeah. So the title is General Intelligence Objectively Determined and Measured. All right, there's so many cool things in there. First, he has general intelligence in quotes. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really cool because to me, it's almost going back to some of the stuff you and I talked about in construct validity. General intelligence is this newly minted term Mm -hmm. that he is studying. And then I love the objectively determined and measured. Now, we can argue till the cows come home, not the boneless ones, because they just lay out there, but the rest of the cows that come home Uh about can it be objectively measured, and we can have lots of fun talking about that, but that was the launching of factor analysis. Absolutely. So you've got all these measures cutting across a variety of disciplines and skills that correlate in ways that you absolutely would not expect. And thinking with his Yule hat on that if there were this common mechanism operating and we could somehow partial that common mechanism out, then what would be left would be these residual elements that wouldn't be related to each other any longer. And so this common factor model that he was developing, which was really like the birth of exploratory factor analysis, because as you and I have talked about before, there's this continuum-ish that goes from exploratory to confirmatory. He was really more at the exploratory end, but was sort of thinking that, you know, if I control for this thing that I can't see through some very clever algebra, essentially, and all of the relations go away, that is support for the existence of one common mechanism that is responsible for the correlations among these variables. And what the heck do you call something like that? What do you call a thing that helps music and math and French and English and all of these things correlate? I don't know how you don't start that with the word general, right? I mean, that's a given. Yep. So then the question is, what comes after that? I don't know, but it's got to be something kind of broad. <laughs> And keep in mind, Ewell had only articulated these eight years earlier, right? I mean, this was brand new off the presses. And two things I think are interesting about Spearman's work. First is the factory analytic part, the mathematical part, was a trivial part of his 1904 paper. Mm -hmm. It was almost an aside. Yeah, footnote-y and appendix kind of stuff. It was in a table. Yeah. (laughs) And he was like, oh, by the way, here, here's how I did it, right? Uh-huh. But it goes back to something we talked about last time. So many of these developments were a tool to achieve an end. He simply saw this method as trying to bring empirical support to adjudicate his research hypothesis. But the second thing is he approached it in a way that is fascinating from a historical standpoint, but it's something that we don't do anymore. And that is he used what was called a method of tetrads. Yeah. Those are pretty dang cool. Yeah. I had the honor of having a structural equation modeling class from Bolin. And Bolin is really into vanishing tetrads. <laughs> and he drilled into those analytically. And they are pretty cool. It's very clever. Do you think you can give us a quick explanation of that? No. No? <laughs> there are differences between products of correlations. Mm-hmm. And if a particular structure holds, those differences in products go to zero if there's this underlying shared cause. 
that's it. Bolin would be disappointed that that's as good as I can do to describe. Yeah, it's like a little local determinant, right? Exactly. So you're identifying those dependencies that would occur by having a zero determinant for a local two-by-two matrix. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. Oh, man, you worked with Yule, right? (laughs) You'll never know. Sorry. Not to belabor a point, but I think it's important here, especially given some of the dark history of factor analysis as it unfolded in the subsequent decades, is Spearman was not a eugenicist. And indeed, he was really interested in the general understanding of the expression of cognitive ability and intelligence. And he has a very famous quote that I love. He said at one point in one of his writing is, every normal man, woman, and child is a genius at something. It remains to discover at what. And I really like that because we will have further discussions in this hour, but also later in the fall when we really tackle the eugenic stuff is factor analysis has a history of being misused. Mm -hmm. And Spearman is viewed as the inventor of factor analysis And we just have to keep straight who was believing what as they proceeded with their program of work. And he had very broad and open views on a lot of this stuff. That's excellent. There are a couple of what I'm going to treat like tidy up points associated with Spearman. Really, each of them is big in and of itself. But I still want to make sure that we sneak them in there because they're important parts of this history. One is that once you open up the possibility that a set of variables has some common underlying mechanism driving them, then you start to make more overt the possibility that the score that you hold in your hand isn't necessarily a representation of the thing that you care about. And we can think about that in a grand way, that a measure of pitch discrimination is not a perfect reflection of intelligence. But we could even think about it in that a measure of musical pitch discrimination is only a score that itself isn't a perfect measure of your pitch discrimination. And for me, that's the foundation of classical test theory, the idea that any score that you hold is part truth and part error with respect to the measurement of the thing itself. And as a result of that, we have to try to navigate this world where we are correlating things that in and of themselves are not the actual things that we care about. He has this great quote in his 1904 piece. He said, the total effect of all such errors, right, measurement error, can be measured and mathematically eliminated, and that until this has been done, no correlational value can be assumed as even approximately correct. So you look at a correlation matrix, the correlations that you have there are going to be dampened, as we've talked about many times, by the fact that you have measurement errors. So he says, all right, all you kids are out there doing correlations, good for you, but those correlations are going to suck when you have measurement error, and we have to do something about that. And he laid out the correction for attenuation formula, which ties into issues of reliability and classical test theory, all of that kind of stuff. So from him stems so much... In fact, these worlds seem to diverge, this factor analytic world, but also this whole measurement world where classical test theory ultimately evolves into more modern test theory. But really, they're all related. Really, they all stem back from the idea that the numbers you hold in your hand don't necessarily represent the things that you care about. So where do we go from here? 
I mean, that lays out almost our whole day job, right? <laughs> and if you're Quanti, we recommend that you go and read this. You can get it online, and it is engaging and interesting. It's humbling. I mean, it's really a remarkable piece. But if you think, Greg, about the things that you just said, one, the notion of what does this number represent? Two, how do we obtain a reliable estimate of that? Three, what do those correlations with other measures represent, right? Because sometimes we correlate things in our day jobs, and I think we don't think enough about why we do that, mm -hmm. right? What is in a path diagram, a correlation is a double-headed arrow. You and I both teach some variations of structural equation modeling, and we talk about differentiating a double-headed error from a single-headed error. And mm -hmm. a single-headed error represents some kind of regression coefficient or a factor loading where you say one thing in part determines another. And if you're going to suck it up and take your shot of whiskey and slam the empty glass on the saloon bar, you're going to say the independent variable in part causes the dependent variable. There is that deterministic relation. Mm -hmm. A correlation says we believe there to be some kind of linear association, but for whatever reason, we're not going to make a deterministic statement about that. It's kind of cowardly. Mm -hmm. We say, oh, yeah, well, if you're higher in pitch discrimination, you tend to be higher on mathematical ability. And if you tend to be higher on mathematical ability, you tend to be higher on spatial ability. Those are all double-headed arrows. And what Spearman was raising was why. Mm -hmm. Why do those correlate with one another? And it's because they share an underlying cause. This is a paradigm shift in how we think. Yeah, two-headed arrows are so gutless. It's just a placeholder for these processes often that are coming in from other variables that you don't have. And if you don't have them, they are latent. And he started to say, well, let's do that. Let's turn your two-headed arrows into some one-headed arrows coming in from that cause. Very, very clever, with tremendous ramifications that we're still feeling and building on. Kind of a side comment, I am very, very fortunate. I'm a faculty member in the Thurstone Psychometric Lab, and the Thurstone Lab hosted a 100-year anniversary conference of Spearman's 1904 paper. So, of course, it was in 2004. Did you come to that? I didn't. I don't know if I knew you then. Right. We hadn't yet had our first date. All right. But no, I didn't come to your nerd bash, but I wish I did. Well, there's an edited book, and it's called Factor Analysis at 100 Historical Developments in Future Directions. And so a couple of observations on this just as we're passing by. First, if you're interested in this stuff, is I'd highly recommend picking this up. It's edited by Bob Kudak and Bud McCallum. And it's just a who's who in the field of people who contributed. So uh, QDEC, David Bartholomew, Lyle Jones, Daryl Bach, Carl Yorskog, Ken Bolin, Jack McCardle. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. But part of the funny thing is I threw the book in my bag a few days ago as I took my Southwest flight out from Raleigh to Denver. And I settled in and I was reading the book on the plane. And it's wonderful because you open it and nobody will talk to you as you sit there. <laughs> But Bob Kudek has the first chapter, and it's called Factor Analysis in the year 2004, still spry at 100. I had not read it. Mm -hmm. All right, it's been 17 years, whatever it is, 18 years. And I had not read the intro, and so I was like, well, I'll just skim this. And Bob's a wonderful writer. And I honked coffee through my nose <laughs> when I hit this laughing 
because he was talking about all the different ways the conference could have been organized. Mm -hmm. And he was saying it could be organized this way, this way, the other way. And then he says, finally, one nefarious member of the organizing committee thought it would be engaging if the conference basically engaged in a good fight over factor scores, model fit, rotation, nominalistic problem. And he goes on, I haunt coffee because that was me. I was <laughs> nefarious. <laughs> that was you. Wow. How fun would it be to gather the leaders in the field and just have a giant three-day octagon cage match? Ladies and gentlemen, let's get ready to rumble! <laughs> yeah, so I was the nefarious member, and 17 years later, I hadn't read that. Aww. Can I bring us stateside for a bit of a sidestep, and then we'll come back to Spearman? Would you allow me that? I would. Go ahead. Cross the pond. Let's move to the Midwest. Let's move to Minnesota and introduce Harold Hotelling, 1895 to 1973. Mm -hmm. So you and I are riding bikes and lighting off firecrackers in <laughs> 1973. And he is a statistician. Uh -huh. And it is very interesting because in prepping a little bit for this conversation, I did the mandatory pulling up on Wikipedia and just skimmed. I, I've known a lot about him because he actually ended his career at University of North Carolina. Right. He was right. in statistics. And of all the things listed on his Wikipedia page, the one that I think is most important is not even noted. Ah. And that is principal components analysis. Yeah. Is hoteling is the inventor, sorry, mom, the discoverer <laughs> of principal components analysis. Hoteling has hoteling's law, hoteling's lemma, hoteling's rule. The one that we all encounter for the first time is hoteling's T-squared, mm -hmm. right? It sets the stage for understanding MANOVA. If any of you have had a good multivariate class, hopefully somebody has taken Gossett's T-test uh -huh. and then had two correlated dependent variables, and that is hoteling's T-squared, and that is the same MANOVA model that you took out, had sit on a stump, <laughs> watch the sun go down, and hit him with a shovel. <laughs> Yeah, I was going to say, if you had a good multivariate course, then that wasn't in there. Um. <laughs> hey, leave hotelling's T-squared out of this. Okay. But we're talking early 30s, 1933, he developed principal components analysis. Yeah. Principal components is not a factor analysis model. That's right. What it does is it uses a brilliant form of eigenvalues and eigenvectors of a correlation matrix to get optimal weighted combinations of your variables that form these components. And each subsequent component is uncorrelated with the prior. So what is the first component that you weight all of the items and get that component score? So they're not just all equally added up. And then you remove that from the matrix and then you get the next component and the next one. And I saw you stick a skewer into the palm of your hand with a croissant while talking about orthogonal eigenvalues. <laughs> That was the highlight of teaching together. Uh, maybe that requires a little bit of explanation. Does it? <laughs> Just leave it hanging there? <laughs> yeah. So very briefly, you and I co-taught a workshop a few weeks back. And I will tell you, it was a pleasure getting to teach with you. It really was. 
But yeah, we were getting into factor models. And one of the things that's so important to me in all statistical methods, and it gets really hard when you start to get to factor analysis, but that is trying to visualize what's going on. Because A, you get into higher dimensions, and B, you involve variables that you can't even see. And so I tried to do a little demo of what principal components represent, what eigenvalues represent, eigenvectors, and so forth. And I needed a three-dimensional shape that had different length, width, and thickness. And the only thing I could find in my house where I was teaching was an old stale croissant. So yes, I tried to demonstrate that by skewering it with little shish kebab things and I went straight through the croissant into the palm of my hand. <laughs> so I bled for my art, man. I bled for that. This is just a sidestep because we're going to juxtapose this with Thurstone, who maybe is the next one we can pull out. Mm -hmm. But just know that Hotelling in the early 30s developed principal component analysis he did not have the same view that Spearman did. Mm -hmm. It's really interesting. He didn't care about interpreting the factor loadings. He wanted the components. So this was strictly a multivariate data reduction. Imagine you have 20 variables and you have a 20 by 20 correlation matrix. And there are 20 times 19 divided by 2 is 190 correlations in that matrix. Mm -hmm. He wanted to reduce it to two dimensions or three dimensions or whatever would be a smaller set. But that was the inventor of principal components analysis. And he did that at the University of North Carolina. Not in your office. No. My building was built like 40 years later. Okay. <laughs> and no one has done anything to it since it was built. Exactly. <laughs> All right, so that's my sidestep. Yeah. And maybe this, and why it's only half a sidestep, is enter maybe one of the most important people in this trajectory of measurement and factor analysis, and that is L.L. Thurstone. You're not biased at all. And that is L.L. Thurstone. <laughs> if not the single most important person in the entire... <laughs> So the reason I'm poking at you is because you are, in fact, in the L.L. Thurstone lab. You even directed the L.L. Thurstone lab. I did. And you have a special bond with L.L. I do have a bias in this, but it's hard to argue that he didn't bring factor analysis into the modern way that we think about it now. If you go mm -hmm. back and read some of his stuff, even in the mid-30s, 1935, he wrote The Vectors of Mind. What he achieved in there is breathtaking. He's a Chicago, born and bred, went to the University of Chicago. They forced him to retire at age 65, and UNC brought him down. Now, I do find this interesting, and again, we will explore this in future episodes, but this is a parade of white men that we've been doing for two episodes now. Yeah. But at the time, a woman named Gertrude Cox, who founded the stats department at NC State and the Institute of Statistics for a joint UNC-NC State, she was in 1956 the president of the American Statistical Association. She was a titan at NC State. Huge. She brought Harold Hotelling down. Mm-hmm. And Dorothy Adkins, who was a psychometrician and the chair of psychology from 1950 to 1961 at UNC. Mm -hmm. So my department, as she was chair in 1950, she was the very first female president of the Psychometric Society. 
And she brought Thurstone down. Hmm. Thurstone and Hotelling were colleagues at UNC at the same time. Crazy. Thurstone was in the psychometric lab. Hotelling was in stats. And they were both brought down by the two leading female statisticians in the world at the time. Mm -hmm. So it's just an interesting little tie. But if you're able to get a PDF or a copy of Vectors of Mind, it is amazing to read. First, it's accessible. Mm -hmm. It really is understandable in the way that it's written and working through. But second, he introduced one of the earliest applications of matrix algebra in these models. And he even gives a tutorial on matrix algebra within the books. He's the first to use the term communality, to use the term uniqueness. He was the first to develop multiple factors. Mm -hmm. So this is where it starts undermining what Spearman was talking about. Actually, at one point, Thurstone had these primary mental abilities. He had seven of them. Things like verbal comprehension, word fluency, number faculty, spatial visualization, perceptual speed, things like that. He developed rotation. Mm -hmm. He was the first to rotate axes toward what he also developed of simple structure. These are all the things. Like if you do EFA in your work right now, and you read Thurstone in the mid-30s, you can see what you're doing now that's evident in his own work. It's really remarkable. He was quite literally doing it geometrically, that the rotation was, okay, and now you take the axes and you take the cosine of the... Trigon trigonomic... <clears throat> <laughs> Trigonometrically? Thank you. <laughs> Using arrows and circles. Uh -huh. <laughs> yeah, and... I've shown you this, and there are pictures online. He had a sphere, right? Because if you have a three axes and you have vectors coming out at unit length in different directions, that actually defines the surface of a sphere. Mm -hmm. And he did a lot of his work in these spheres, and he had actual globes that were made out of chalkboard material. And I have Thurstone's globe on my desk. That is so cool. Yeah, don't tell Bauer. I uh. kind of <laughs> took it from the office. So Dan Bauer is now the director of the lab. So I'd appreciate uh -huh. it if everybody would not tell Dan that I have Thurstone's globe. Uh -huh. But what's interesting is kind of the full circle Thurstone never affiliated with the eugenics movement. Mm -hmm. And indeed, he was motivated by trying to understand these processes. And he took exception to a lot of the British school of Spearman and Burt and some of the others. But even at the end of Thurstone's career, he kind of went back to a G, but in a mm -hmm. second order factor analysis. So you can imagine seven primary mental abilities, seven factors that correlate and a second-order factor analysis then can lay under a factor that underlies those seven factors. And he telegraphed what we now think about as a second-order factor analysis. Yeah. He and Spearman had similarities in this regard. What Spearman was doing was saying, hey, we have all these measured variables and they correlate. I am going to be brave enough and ask, why do they correlate? And he offered a one-factor explanation for the mechanism for why they correlate. And then Thurstone comes along and says, no, there can be many of these kinds of underlying processes that are operating. Heck, maybe there are seven of them. So we have a whole bunch of variables, and those variables correlate because we bravely say that they are being driven by these, let's say, seven factors. 
Well, are those factors independent of each other? Well, not necessarily independent of each other. Okay, so they're correlated with these. Well, yes, they might be correlated with each other. Okay, smart guy, why are they correlated with each other? And then we find ourselves asking the same type of question about why those, what we could call first-order factors, correlate, as Spearman was really asking in terms of why these measures correlate. And so in the end, the question is how many mechanisms are responsible for the patterns of cowardly two-headed arrows that might connect these up to seven vectors of mind. So exactly as you said, they sort of came to the same thing as they worked their way up a hierarchy asking why do these two-headed arrows exist? And they came to this idea of a common mechanism. So I would like to take a moment to remind us why we're here. Marshmallows. Marshmallows. <laughs> Would you like some more? Huh? Why are we here? I will tell you why we're here, just as a reminder. Last time we were talking about what we, I think, maybe even said, the history of statistics. And a lot of the stuff that we're talking about today is stuff that people wouldn't even classify as statistics. In fact, there are multivariate textbooks that get into higher-level statistics, and none of this stuff ever gets mentioned. And what we said at the beginning was that there are these threads that are weaving through history. One is about the development of statistics and statistical thinking and hypothesis testing. And the other thread that sort of weaves around that is that which gets at what do these numbers even mean? Are they accurate measures? What are the things that are driving them? And so what we're really doing in this episode is we're broadening it, not just talking about the history of statistics, but really talking about the history of quantitative methods more broadly. And quantitative methods more broadly includes the statistical strand, but it can't live without the measurement strand either. And so today what we've really been getting at is a bit about how we think about things from the point of view of questioning what these numbers mean, questioning why these scores correlate with each other and trying to dig into some of the major players who have helped us to think about how to do that. And what I love about going back to these early works is you're exactly right. From the first episode, we were talking like hardcore asymptotic distributions of test statistics to get standard errors. So we get p-values and inferential tests with respect to a null hypothesis, having an alternative hypothesis, having type 1 and type 2 error. When you go back to what we're talking about in this episode, that's completely absent. Yep. There are no test statistics. There are no standard errors. There's no null hypothesis. There's no alternative hypothesis. This is simply saying, I have in front of me a correlation matrix. Where did that come from? What structure accounts for the pattern of correlations that I observed? And now be sure that those things come on board, right? The test statistics and the hypothesis testing, and we will come to that in a future discussion. Mm -hmm. But it really wasn't until Lawley in 1940. And man, I mean, again, put yourself back in time, 1940. Lawley developed maximum likelihood estimates for factor analysis. Now, keep in mind you're doing it by hand, mm -hmm. right? Go ahead and derive those first and second order derivatives by hand. But as soon as we move to maximum likelihood, now we have a likelihood function. We have test statistics. We have standard errors. But it is absolutely fascinating that this entire branch of quantitative methods is devoid of a p-value 
or a test statistic or a critical ratio. Mm -hmm. This is here is an underlying latent structure that if true or even approximately true would result in the pattern of correlations that we observed in our 300 kids who we gave the battery of tests. Yeah. The only question that leaves me with is, where is SS? Smitty? (laughs) Yeah. So Stevens, SS Stevens, Smitty to his pals, he's off on the side, right? He's not playing with Spearman or Thurstone or Hotelling or any of these people. He is a... Psychoacoustics. Yes, he's a psychoacoustician. Does that sound right? I don't know. Is that a real... How about a hearing guy? Okay. (laughs) Okay. So that's what he did. Stevens fits into all of this because he further questioned what numbers actually mean. In fact, in his paper, was it 1944? His science paper was 46. Yes. Okay. So he's a fellow baby boomer with you. (laughs) Oh, well, he wasn't born in 46. I guess he wrote it in 46. Anyway, go ahead, boomer. (laughs) We played stickball together (laughs) and kicked the can. (laughs) So Stevens, even though he was not part of that whole factor analytic and classical test theory kind of tradition, he was front and center at questioning what the heck these numbers mean, what we can do with them. And he described in the 1946 paper about this committee, this ongoing. (laughs) It sounds like the committee from hell. Uh. So I actually, while you were talking, I just pulled up a PDF of this. Uh Okay, so he is director of the Psychoacoustic Laboratory at Harvard. Mm -hmm. So of questionable academic lineage. Yeah. And one thing I love about science is it was Friday, June 7th, 1946. Uh It is written in such a wonderfully colloquial way. It's this committee that, like, wouldn't die. And here it says, An interim report in 1938 found one member complaining that his colleagues came out by the same door as they went in. And in order to have another try at agreement, the committee begged to be continued for another year. (laughs) Yeah, I love his description. You don't have to know anything about psychoacoustics. But think about the whole process of assigning numbers to things. I'm going to start off with things. And if you are someone who does physics, and I'll be very crude at this, the things might be like height and weight, things that have this tangibility associated with them. But now I'm going to ask you to put a number not on those things, but on your perception of those things. So I am going to ask you whether or not you think this sound is louder than that sound, or whether or not you think this light is brighter than that light. So I'm going to start putting this psychological filter of perception on it. How the heck do we quantify that? And that ties in really, really well with the kinds of stuff that Spearman was thinking about and other people were thinking about. The idea that we have these scores that don't necessarily represent the physical aspects, but they represent the more psychological filtering of those physical aspects. And Stevens was worried about this. The committee that he was working on was worried about that. How do we take these kinds of perceptions that people have and translate that into numbers? And once we translate it into numbers, what the heck can we even do with those numbers? And so he laid out in this beautiful and mercifully short paper the whole notion of scales of measurement. And as we talked about in a previous episode, 
The scales of measurement literature has been poked at by various people, but still the idea of data embodying only information about category, the idea that they're nominal, or perhaps that those categories can be ordered and the data are ordinal, or perhaps the distances between those categories carry a common interval across those and the data are intervally scaled all the way up to ratio scales. The idea that the numbers carry with them information and that information dictates the kinds of statistical activities that we can perform on those particular data was a huge, huge idea. Quanti people go find this and read it, 1946 in science. I have it here in front of me. The committee was appointed in 1932. All right, he's <laughs> writing in 1946. But I love this. He says that the committee was appointed to determine, is it possible to measure human sensation? Yeah. And then he writes, deliberation led only to disagreement, mainly about what is meant by the term measurement. I love that. Yeah. That that's the source of the disagreement, is what do you even mean by measurement? And then this has come up, and we paraphrase this quite a bit, but it may be one of my favorite definitions in our entire field. About three paragraphs in, he says, we may say that measurement, in the broadest sense, is defined as the assignment of numerals to objects or events according to rules. That's it. I don't know a more elegant definition of what we do in everything in the sciences, right? Yep. This isn't even like, you know, musical pitch and mathematical ability. Is Science cannot exist without empirical measurement. And it is simply saying measurement is that principled assignment of numbers to observations. I love that. That's one of my favorite quotes of everything that we do. Absolutely. Now, keep in mind, 1946, this is setting the stage for what every one of us does in some way or another in our day job. And to think about these things in measurement, to think about how do we obtain a numerical value, what does it represent, and why does it exist, right? That's really what we're asking is... How does it relate to other things? And what structure underlies it that in some way gave rise to these set of measures? It goes back to a conversation we had in a prior episode that exploratory factor analysis isn't really exploratory and confirmatory factor analysis isn't really confirmatory, which is everything we've done up till now, although it's been guided by substantive theory, Spearman had substantive theory, Thurstone had substantive theory, Right? These guys were all working toward an understanding of what they believed to be the structure that gave rise to the data. But do you know how hard it is to check a corpse on Southwest Airlines? <laughs> I'm just asking you as a friend. Do you know how hard it is to check a corpse? It turns out it does not count as part of your two-bag free. Really? Yes. Over in the corner in my brother's basement is the corpse of Karl Popper. Wow. And first, he mm -hmm. does not like Southwest Airlines. I'm just telling you right now. I'm a big fan of Southwest. Carl is not. Mostly because <laughs> I had to put him in a golf bag. Uh -huh. Plus, he kept grunting, which was like, <laughs> I'm like, dude, shut up. You're going to cost me 40 bucks. Wait, 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 wait. What if you put a vest on him and referred to him as your emotional support corpse? Oh, <laughs> that's how I'm going to bring him back. Genius! I'm so scared to fly. I have to bring an 80-year-old corpse with me. Hey, 
It's like traveling with my mom. I, anyway, all right, so I was going somewhere with that. Popper is not happy. He's making his sad, grunty sounds. Because wait, wait, even wait, what do those sound like? <laughs> all right, I think it's the altitude that's getting to me. Rocky We are uncharacteristically getting a little off task here. Okay. There was very much theory that underlied this work. There was Spearman had G theory and had a very specific way that he thought that existed. Thurstone had primary mental abilities. He had a very clear sense of how those existed. Mm -hmm. Don't fool yourself that there were not theories that were posited to have given rise to the numerical values that were observed in the sample data. The thing that was not done at this time was imposing a restricted a priori structure on the data and making that a testable hypothesis. Now, in part, was a Ghostbusters-like don't cross the streams Mm -hmm. is what we got to do is take some of what we talked about poolside and combine it with things that we talked about campfire side and mix those two together in a way that allows us to cross those streams of inferential probability and hypothesis testing with the factor model. We'll cross the streams. Excuse me, Egon. You said crossing the streams was bad. Cross the streams. There's definitely a very slim chance we'll survive. I love this plan. I'm excited to be a part of it. Let's do it. Could I close with a quote that I really like? Um, I just like that you're ready to close. So what you're saying is, could I keep you from saying anything more? (laughs) So, Greg, this is a nice place for you to stop talking, Uh, I think. uh, uh, uh. Yeah. And as you established last time, it really means I have to go to the bathroom. (laughs) Go ahead. Vectors of Mind was 1935, and then he updated it in 1947. And there are a couple of sentences here. It'll take me just a moment, but I think it's really cool. So in 35, Thurstone wrote, no one would think of investigating the fundamental laws of classical mechanics by correlational method or by factor methods, because the laws of classical mechanics are already well known. If nothing were known about the law of falling bodies, it would be sensible to analyze factorially a great many attributes of objects that are dropped or thrown from an elevated point. It would then be discovered that one factor is heavily loaded with the time of fall and with the distance fallen, but that this factor has a zero loading in the weight of the object. The usefulness of the factor methods will be at the borderline of science. Hmm. All right, 1935. Now, a dozen years later in the updated book, he says, the exploratory nature of factor analysis is often not understood. Factor analysis has as its principal usefulness at the borderline of science. Factor analysis is useful, especially in those domains where basic and fruitful concepts are essentially lacking and where crucial experiments have been difficult to conceive. The new methods have a humble role. They enable us to make only the crudest first map of a new domain. Hmm. I find this fascinating in how Thurstone himself viewed factor analysis. In both of those quotes, he talks about at the border of science. Mm -hmm. I think in our next discussion, we should move to how can we cross these two incredibly important lines 
that were really running at the same time, right? Mm -hmm. What a time to be alive. The 1910s, 20s, 30s, 40s, this is a remarkable time in the development and application of things that we all take for granted and use every day. But it's not really until maybe 20 years forward where we start to cross these things and say, well, wait a minute. In the exploratory factor model, all items load on all factors. Maybe we don't have to do that. And that is where your colleague, Carl Jorskog, kind of shows up and says, I'm not going to do a Swedish accent because one is I will offend an entire country and second, it will come out as a pirate. Uh -huh. <laughs> but says, what if we restricted the factor loading matrix and made that a testable hypothesis and Popper's corpse just grunted <laughs> happily? That's where I think we should go next. Yeah. And it's going to draw on so many things. It's going to draw on model building and falsification and the integration of latent variable models with measured variable models and measurement error and causal structures and maybe even power. One thing that's interesting as we move into this third stage of the conversation is eugenics does not play as salient a role as it has in the first two episodes. There are echoes of that, there are fingerprints of that, but it does not play as leading a role as it did. Now, what's interesting is a guy reached out to you on this history in eugenics. Tell me a little bit about that. Yes, yes, yes. It was Derek Briggs who is at CU Boulder, which I believe is your alma mater. I believe so, too. Okay. <laughs> so Derek is the president of National Council on Measurement and Education, and he has a book coming out. I think it's going to come out maybe in November. And it is going to do much more justice, I think, to the stuff that we were talking about in this episode. And by that, I mean, A, I don't think he pulled the book straight out of his butt, as we have done here in this particular episode. But B, I think it's going to do a really nice job of wrestling with, and I don't think there's a better word, wrestling with some of the origins of these things that we have, especially within measurement and that very prominent backdrop of eugenics. And the book that he'll have coming out is called Historical and Conceptual Foundations of Measurement in the Human Sciences. And it's going to be a Routledge book, which is a division of Taylor and Francis. In this book, he addresses the major figures that we have talked about here and also some others that we haven't had time to dig into. The quantity objection, the idea that we can actually quantify everything. The role of measurement in promoting eugenics, theories of intelligence, the measurement of attitudes... I have a one-paragraph description, and I'm sort of jumping into the middle. Readers will emerge from this book with a deeper appreciation of both the challenges and affordances of measurement in quantitative research. This aligns really, really nicely, not just with some of the things that we talked about here today, but I think it's also going to tie beautifully to what we're going to try to accomplish in the fall. So I'm completely excited about this particular book that's coming out. Well, and we duly appreciate his complete lack of judgment and spending time listening to us, <laughs> but also reaching out and sharing that with us, because that's something that I'm really looking forward to seeing and is going to be a really important contribution. So we will keep an eye on that in the fall. Yeah, very cool. All right, buddy. This was fun. I think our campfire's about out. I don't know where we're going to end up in the next episode, but I think you and I will be as surprised as the <laughs> listeners will be. All right. Thanks very much for everything. Yeah, thanks, everybody. Take care and stay safe. All right. See ya. Thanks so much for joining us today. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your fireside entertainment. And please leave us a review. 
You can also follow us on Twitter, where we are at QuantitudePod, or visit our website, QuantitudePod.org, for past episodes and other cool stuff. Finally, you can get amazing Quantitude merch to protect you from these mosquitoes at redbubble.com, where all proceeds go to DonorsChoose.org to support remote access in low-income schools. You've been listening to Quantitude. We don't always throw another log on the fire, but when we do, it's a natural log.